Hello and welcome to our Fixing Healthcare podcast show, Breaking the Rules. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Core, and host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can go to his website, robertperlmd.com. Our guest today is Dr. Tom Lee. He was the founder of Hippocrates, one of the earliest technology-enabled healthcare applications for doctors and One Medical, the primary care-first company that recently acquired by Amazon for $3.9 billion. He is currently the CEO of Galileo, a telemedicine-first healthcare startup that he hopes will make medical care affordable for all Americans. Good morning, Tom, and welcome to Fixing Healthcare. Thanks, Ravi. This is season number seven, and it's focused on breaking healthcare's rules. The rules we're talking about aren't the ones written in textbooks or found in lecture halls. They're the unwritten ones, the ones we believe about how to act. They're what you and I learned as medical students and residents by observing senior residents and the attending physicians on rounds and throughout the day. The season focuses on the rule breakers, people like yourself, who rather than continuing the practices of the past, see a different path and head down it. So let's go back to your career path from medical school to business school to entrepreneur. Can you describe the steps along the way and why you decided to march in a different direction than most doctors? Yeah, no, happy to chat. And maybe just for the reference, let's call it norm breaking rather than rule breaking. I think that might kind of resonate more for me, I guess, because we do like to be uh, compliant, obviously, uh, working within the rules and boundaries of the um, regulatory landscape. But uh, from a, a norm perspective, um, you know, that probably is thematically consistent with most of my career because, uh, you know, everywhere I looked, there were norms that nobody could explain to me. Um, and even as a med student and resident, uh, we did a lot of things that didn't make a lot of sense, right? Our mission was to care for patients in a thoughtful manner. Uh, but what we were doing seemed antithetical to that. So um, even as a young physician in training, um, I just started noticing dissonance with what we were doing from what we thought uh, we had, uh, why we had joined the profession. So when you and I trained, there was this unwritten norm that memory was the most important skill a doctor could possess. We memorized hundreds of drugs with indications, dosages, and complications, we couldn't remember them, we found a huge book called The Physician Desk Reference, or PDR. But you broke that norm by creating an application called Hippocrates. Can you tell listeners what Hippocrates is and how you decided to create it? Yeah, no, happy to. Um, and, you know, it probably just dates us a bit. Um, but uh, back in the day, uh, pre-mobile phones uh, and pre-internet, really, most people were really using um, uh, these kind of very thick uh, reference books to look up drug information in advance of prescription. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the uh, monographs that were available were just typically uh, regulatory manufacturing type of uh, monographs. They weren't uh, necessarily clinically relevant and or um, outdated often at the time you were looking at them. So uh, uh, at Hippocrates, which was one of the first companies we worked on together out of business school, um, 
it was really a, an intent to to take that information and make it make it actionable at the point of care. And and back in the day, you know, uh, this is in the early uh, formation of technology and internet. Uh, the, the forum factor was the Palm Pilot at that stage. So that gives you a sense of how old um, uh, we might be of from our, our medical training and or our, uh, technical backgrounds. But back then, you know, most people felt that docs wouldn't uh, install any software, particularly uh, that clunky. Uh, uh, but we found that docs would, were, were doing this quite readily if it was useful and helpful. And we found out that uh, technology was a huge enabler to allow for this to happen. And, um, you know, even just to step back a bit further, you know, the reason why I ended up even being in business school and working on Hippocrates was, you know, back to the kind of question why I was a, a resident in training, like, why are we doing all this stuff? Nobody could explain it. And one of the, the norms or uh, kind of, uh, you know, just implied messages in medicine was, you know, we do what we do, right? It is the profession of medicine um, that matters the most and the environment, what we call the economic environment, the business environment, the management environment, particularly where I trained was somewhat diminished or dismissed. And uh, to me, they were heavily influencing the environment in which we practice, the economic factors, the management administrative factors that I wanted to better understand uh, what were these mysterious forces driving the systems of care that you know, I felt as a clinician were inappropriate uh, or certainly a suboptimal. Um, so that's what ended up uh, kind of leading to my business uh, career. And, you know, this was not something that was considered very vogue or sexy among doctors. In fact, it was viewed as a negative trait. Um, and, uh, and, you know, most of my other colleagues are going into uh, specials uh, kind of training, uh, but my specials training ended up being business and it allowed me to see the world more broadly than, you know, where traditional medicine uh, typically is, is looked at. As you point out in 2007, the iPhone comes along and now we're 15 years later and we still choose, train and evaluate medical students on this ability to memorize. We give them these tests like step one and step two that require knowing 10,000 facts about arcane diseases around the world. Should we be elevating computer skills above memory skills? Should we be requiring that people bring iPhones to exams and test them on their ability to apply that? Or is that too much to expect the medical, student, medical schools to uh, change and to incorporate? It's a great question. I do think that if you're saying, hey, what are the other ways that we need to kind of re-examine how we do things. Medical training certainly is one of those areas where the, the knowledge and data and information is so overwhelming um, that uh, relying on clinical memories um, or human memory to make any kind of judgment, I think is uh, unwise, particularly as we look at the future. So we need to re-examine you know, what we reward and train um, young uh, physicians in training and clinicians in training in general. I do think that some, you know, it's just like anything, if you, if you completely uh, get rid of your memory muscle, then <laughs> there may be some detriment to that. So there is some balance of appropriate memorization probably, you know, but I, I personally uh, never found memorization to be that uh, inspiring or helpful in my medical training. And the best teachers and where I learned the most and frankly, durably, 
are the principles, right? The principles and logic and judgment that shape uh, clinical thinking. And to me, those are uh, the enduring principles that I would like to see, frankly, more medical training to reinforce. And um, unfortunately, it's picked up through osmosis and not through uh, you know, a formal kind of discipline. And I do think that's something to you know, reconsider as we start to uh, examine the workforce and frankly, the profession of medicine. Tom, you know, after you made Hippocrates successful, you took on a, another norm, the norm that said the best place to get medical care was in an independent physician's office. And you started One Medical in San Francisco. Can you take listeners back to the beginning of that journey? What is One Medical and how did you decide to begin it? And how has it evolved across time? Yeah, the inspiration behind One Medical was really what catalyzed my, you know, career arc. You know, uh, as a young physician in training, I was like, I don't want to practice in any of these broken models. I had worked in almost every environment, uh, you know, whether it be uh, academic institutions, private practice, you know, capitated uh, HMO models, uh, you know, native health service organizations, all really great organizations with well-intended providers and leaders, uh, but the care model just didn't make any sense. And so I knew that um, there was a better care model that could be designed, particularly given how much we were spending in um, healthcare overall. And this is back in the you know, late 90s. So um, for me, the, the, the inspiration uh, was to kind of say, hey, look, you know, primary care is a broken layer. Everybody recognized this, you know, 20 plus years ago that primary care was broken. Nobody wanted to invest in re-examining how to improve primary care. And so the real uh, impetus behind One Medical was, can we validate that a higher touch, better primary care model can be built and scaled and run in an economically viable fashion, right? Most people thought that primary care was an unsustainable part of healthcare services um, and nobody was really paying attention to it. Um, and so uh, that was really the inspiration and to validate, if you look way, way back and you know, I know Don has been on your show, but a lot of that work about re-examining uh, workflows and looking at micro practices were some of the early inspiration for me to start One Medical, which is, you know, what do you really need to run a high touch medical practice and can you do it within traditional reimbursement? And so what had been told to me was primary care, you know, doesn't make any margin. You need all the staff to support it. Um, you certainly can't open it downtown in a high real estate rent market. Um, everything about the concept of one medical made no sense to traditional norms. If you talk to consultants at that time, the focus was, hey, you got to protect the physician time. So you have all this staff doing all the pre-work and then the doc spends 10 minutes with the patient. And that way you increase the quote unquote productivity of the doctor. And that was the norm. I mean, if you talk to any business management, administrative practice consultant expert, that was the norm. And I remember something that, you know, Don Berwick said way back when I was a res resident saying, the the thing that patients want is time with the doctor, right? It's not a unit, it's the time with the physician. And so a lot of inspiration with One Medical was how do you actually enable that um, with a fixed reimbursement model for the most part? And the key innovation there was administrative redesign. So we just remanaged and redesigned 
the administrative workflows to be more effective, more efficient, right? The average practice in primary care is overwhelmed with administrative burden, but they don't have the sophistication, particularly as the complexity has been layered in over decades uh, to redesign that. And so I had the luxury of starting from scratch and redesigning it. And, and now that technology was more available, I wanted to design it using technology. So that allowed us to do you know, 10X the service at about a third of the administrative overhead of a traditional practice. And then that allowed us to give more time back into the uh, physician exam room, which allowed patients and providers to have more time. And we got all the other people out of the way. Um, so it wasn't, you know, uh, what I call it, it wasn't that radical in terms of what we were trying to do, but it was hard to do. You know, uh, the thesis at that time was um, you just can't make it work. And we validated that you can make margin in primary care and, and scale it and attract um, you know, professional capital, which was the intent to kind of really reshape the assumptions about uh, the importance of primary care. The clientele, at least in San Francisco, that I'm well aware of, uh, often are in the high tech world. They are often moderately high in income. Is the model as applicable to people in Medicaid and people in lower socioeconomic strata? Yeah, that's a bit of the challenge here when people look at One Medical from afar. They say, oh, it's just for young and healthy people. And that's because it looks like a modern, clean uh, website with a, you know, an easy to use appointment uh, booking system and, and convenient workflows. So that's the veneer of One Medical. And people presume that that is only designed for, you know, what I call urban professional uh, patients. But the reality is that uh, the clinicians are comprehensively trained, much more so than any traditional, you know, primary care practice. They've given more time uh, to interact with patients, and so, uh, and we accept Medicare. Um, that's always been uh, the premise of One Medical. So, uh, it's a bit of a kind of a misunderstanding of how One Medical is architected. So, we take care of plenty of seniors. Uh, and complex patients in one medical and physicians have more time to take care of those patients. So um, all things being equal, it's a better model for anybody because there's more time. That being said, you know, uh, fee for service has limitations in terms of its economics as we know. Um, and so uh, making the economics of office-based medical practices work effectively within, you know, particularly low reimbursement Medicaid is not as sustainable. And so at some level, we have to make those trade-offs of how do you build a viable uh, economic model uh, against the mission, right? And so uh, my focus is always, how do I improve quality and affordability of care for everybody? But you can't do it in your first cut. And that was, you know, the first attempt was one medical uh, and we got as far as Medicare fee-for-service. Um, but obviously, you know, uh, now working with Galileo, that is the intent. Um, but it takes an extraordinary amount of innovation to really make, you know, the Medicaid reimbursement architecture work, particularly given the complexity of a lot of the Medicaid populations. If you really want to do a great job at caring for Medicaid, the current you know, office-based reimbursement framework just doesn't work. And so you really have to re-examine the care model. Um, and that's you know, obviously the inspiration behind Galileo. 
Obviously, the big news was Amazon's purchase of One Medical for $3.9 billion. How do you see this acquisition affecting the care delivery process? Um, you know, it's, it, it just a, you know, full disclosure, I'm not involved with the deal, nor has it closed. And so there's a lot, you know, um, that still remains to be seen. Um, but from afar, um, you know, I, I think what this basically says is, you know, uh, the healthcare system as we know it is clearly not working well. I think everybody knows that. And it's large enough and broken enough that it's attracting interest from uh, what I call non-traditional uh, providers or uh, non-healthcare um, provider entities into the space. So um, that can be a good or bad energy depending on how productive and how thoughtful it is. I do think that people tend to not understand the nuances within uh, the industry itself, right? Uh, the, there's a lot of rhetoric around healthcare um, that can be misleading and people can form judgments um, that I think uh, are not necessarily well-founded. So I think you have to look at the industry dispassionately understand how it's architected, how it's financed to really solve it, right? The rhetoric and the simplified lens uh, that come from the political left and the political right are just uh, unproductive. So um, when we start to see large companies like Amazon enter healthcare, I think it could be a good or a bad thing. Um, but, you know, from uh, uh, what we know about Amazon, I think is they're very deliberate and um, uh, have a little bit more of a mindset towards, um, you know, getting it solved, right? Um, and so I think it'll be interesting to see how that gets translated within the One Medical construct. My, my sense is that One Medical's got a strong identity and operational model that I think these things will uh, augment and complement each other, um, but we'll see. You know, it's, it's still uh, very early to tell. And independent of that, um, from my lens, there's just so much work that remains to be done that, um, you know, we need more folks trying to solve the problem. As you know, I'm a big uh, proponent of both One Medical and the customer-focused nature of Amazon. And when I look at this, I see Amazon having acquired PillPack, then it opens clinics, then it starts telemedicine. Now with One Medical, it has 188 clinic sites in 25 different markets. I see this as a truly disruptive force for the benefit of customers where the patients going forward, I can see the same type of access, convenience, um, greater affordability that Amazon has brought to retail into medicine. Do you see this as being as great a disruptive force as I do? I see the potential as potentially disruptive, <laughs> um, but I think I'm also just aware of um, what it takes to get there. Um, so, uh, you know, I think you look at a lot of large entities today, they have a lot of components and ingredients that in theory offer the potential for disruption. But I do think it's more complicated. Like, uh, so uh, the word disruption, I think is a little bit challenging in a healthcare space that is so fractured and, and consolidated at the same time. I, I just think that the, the dynamism of Typical industries is uh, 
misleading when you kind of look at the same dynamism in healthcare. So it, it just has a very different dynamic. Um, so yeah, I think it has potential. I do agree that uh, Amazon One Medical share the same mindset of patient-centeredness, consumer-centeredness, a focus on uh, value and efficiency and using tech. So those are strongly in alignment. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly with, uh, you know, I, I think some of the challenges with uh, Amazon are that it is Amazon, right? And so it, it adds some asset strength, um, but it also has some charge, right? And uh, that charge can potentially uh, create some risk. So I think there's just a balancing act here um, where I think the nuance that's an unknown is that, you know, healthcare at some level, particularly in primary care, is a private, personal, trusted space, right? And at some level, you see a little bit of turbulence around it right now, but we'll see kind of how it really shakes out is, do you feel comfortable uh, with a non-clinical entity kind of having that uh, as the ecosystem and backdrop? So I think that's gonna be, you know, to be borne out over time. And a portion of the population, I think, will gravitate towards that. And then um, other portions of the population may not. But, um, but you know, like I said, it's there's a lot of uh, work to be done in, in between the, the theory and the practice of it. Um, but certainly, you know, uh, it is an uh, energetic <laughs> uh, uh, movement in the industry right now. And, um, I'm, I'm more than anything just kind of just fascinated to see how it shakes out. Um, yeah. Let's go to the present. And now you're, as you've mentioned, breaking another norm in the creation of Galileo. You're combining sort of the best parts of Hippocrates with the best parts of one medical, as I see it. Uh, medicine does not have to be, as you said, in person. Can you tell us about what you're doing with Galileo and where you see it going in the future? Yeah, at high level, we are um, re-examining the norms of, you know, how should care be delivered, right? And this was started pre-pandemic, but, you know, there are some strengths to an office visit, there are strengths to a video visit, but there are a lot of weaknesses uh, to that form factor. And we believe in a more um, data-oriented uh, evidence-oriented approach to how care is delivered. Uh, so from a quality perspective, how do you redesign quality into the care model? And then in parallel, designing affordability into the care model. And so uh, being more capital efficient, more labor efficient, um, and covering a broader range of services and scope is really kind of the thesis of Galileo. How can we be more radically focused on higher quality care more affordably to what we call kind of last mile populations, uh, patients that uh, are either too complicated for the traditional model, too underserved, uh, or too geographically disparate and, and dispersed. And so what we really wanted to do was design a care model for everybody that represents the highest standard of care. Um, so it's just, you know, building upon my prior work and, and thinking through uh, how do you build that? And then how do you make it economically viable in the current system, right? It's just, you have to work within the current system, but then how do you navigate that to build a more radically future forward model? And so that's what we're 
building at Galileo. How does it combine the virtual with the in-person? We're more deliberate about what needs to be done where. Um, and so we have a, a, a digital first element of care that's accessed through a mobile device. Uh, and then we have a home-based care model uh, that's in and around the community for the most complex and intensive. And so almost think about it as a mirror image to One Medical. One Medical's you know, office first with uh, expansion into digital. Uh, we're really digital first and home first and uh, refer into office as appropriate, um, which allows us to be leaner, meaner and scaling across the, uh, the country much more quickly. So we're already scaling much more quickly than we did at One Medical and we're taking care of a much more diverse population um, than one medical um, was ever intended to, to care for, right? There's a limit to what the care model was designed for. At that, you know, when we started one medical, it was mostly, hey, can you actually make primary care economically viable and scale a better traditional experience? Galileo is a more radically different experience and it's designed to scale against uh, all lives. What percent of total medical care do you believe can be provided virtually when done optimally? It depends on what type of care. You know, we kind of typically slice things, primary care, specialty care. Uh, at Galileo, we really think about knowledge-based care versus procedural care. And so we think the vast majority of knowledge-based care can be delivered digitally. And the vast majority of uh, procedural based care can, should be delivered in the office. Um, and so that division is how we look at things. Um, and so I think we've just had this antiquated model based on traditional training norms, you know, and specialization and the brick and mortar silos that exist today. And, um, you know, our vision is you know, that's antiquated. Let's, let's design a normative model that represents what's possible. Uh, using technology today. And obviously during the pandemic, we achieved levels of 30, 40, 50, 60, 70% virtual care that have now dropped back to exclude mental health across the US to around 10%. Uh, how are you gonna get patients to be willing to continue in a virtual model if at least today they're not? Yeah, I think people will ebb and flow and different demographics will try out different services over time. You know, uh, that's just kind of a normal thing. So the, the hype cycle of the pandemic is just that. It's a hype cycle that'll ebb and flow. Um, but, you know, there are what are called structural forces over time that will um, uh, change that are you know, separate from the care model, which not everybody can appreciate what's, you know, higher quality or lower quality care, but certainly uh, norms and economics uh, will increasingly shape people's decisions. And I think those are the, the long-term trend lines about where we get our care. Um, it's not either or, it's like what portfolio of services and when, depending on who you are, right? Um, and so uh, that's just a function of time. And so, uh, you know, people aren't radically choosing healthcare daily, you know, as part of their lives. So the pace of change isn't as quickly as let's call it, you know, beverage selection, right? You know, um, so if you were to uh, change habits on beverage selection, that happens quite quickly, you know, uh, and dynamically. But the way people consume healthcare isn't changing as dynamically, and and that's fine. 
Um, but we're focused on kind of the structural changes over time that build a better care model period. Um, and most importantly, you know, improve the affordability of care. That's really the, the nut of the healthcare crisis is how do you get affordability improved uh, for the system, right? People that are paying for healthcare, but also the individuals that have to pay out of pocket uh, to support, you know, that increasing gap uh, between, uh, you know, just the care and the affordability. Tom, how do you see an organization like Galileo being a game changer for rural healthcare? Yeah, so, you know, I did a lot of my medical training in rural environments. And even back then, it was quite apparent that the local family practice doc was overwhelmed, right? They don't have the resource, they don't have the density to support, you know, a, a bunch of providers. Um, and there are very few options. And so when you start to move uh, consultation to the cloud, right? Uh, your quality and access to expertise go up dramatically in rural environments. And the rural providers are then able to focus on the relationships and the high value items that matter, uh, including house calls. So we view Galileo as an enabler of better care, uh, better proportioned uh, with the right allocations that improve provider sustainability while improving uh, the quality of patient care. So you know, one of our core theses is how do you solve the rural care uh, issue and crisis? And in my mind, I think uh, what we're doing is giving a broader division of labor and broader access to uh, rural patients and improving the lives of rural providers. Final question, a decade from now, what's the American healthcare system gonna look like? A decades, you know, both short and long in healthcare terms. Um, I'm quite hopeful. I, I think, I'm thinking it could be one of the countries that are looked to as what's happening here might be a model to be examined elsewhere. I mean, you know, I, I would like to think that in 10 years from now, we are exporting some of our ideas to other countries as people realize that quality and affordability can coexist. Um, and it's not necessarily a trade-off uh, between the two. Um, and, you know, what I call the innovator disruptive entrepreneurial energy uh, of the U.S. system, I, I think given its constraints, I think will produce some really interesting uh, concepts and ideas that potentially could be exported. Will it be fee-for-service or capitated? I think it'll still be hybridized, um, but a higher percent will be capitated. I don't know what it is. Will the satisfaction of patients and doctors or Android doctors be higher or lower? Uh, again, these are pretty broad generalizations. I, you know, like I said, 10 years is a short, long time frame. meaning uh, there will be, you know, let's call it a pretty radical uh, innovation. And in, I think 10% of the sector, maybe 20% of the sector, but that doesn't mean the majority of the sector. So um, I think you're going to see, uh, you know, a mixed bag of really strong pockets and really weak pockets on that promoter score, um, uh, as well as on provider satisfaction. The provider satisfaction will likely be a, a function of which environment people are working in. And frankly, which providers uh, should be working in which environment. So I think that that'll kind of be 
uh, an increasing rotational shift over the next 10 years is which providers are working where and how. And will the gap between the haves and the have-nots be greater or less? There, I think it will be less. The haves and have-nots that I describe is more about who's leading and who's following and less about uh, premier care and underserved care. I think that gap will continue to close as more people focus time and attention on affordability and quality. Um, so I'm hopeful that that gap doesn't necessarily increase. Um, the gap I talk about is who's leaning in and who's dragging their heels on you know, where the future of healthcare is going. Thank you, Tom, for being on today's podcast and for continuing to push the frontiers of what is possible in healthcare through innovation and technology. Robbie, what do you think about what Tom said? Jeremy, Tom is a visionary with a track record of success. It's hard to believe that he founded Hippocrates 25 years ago when technology was still in its infancy. And it's amazing that One Medical, the company that he created as a single office in San Francisco, is now national with 188 clinics. And it will be the driving force for Amazon's healthcare strategy. It's interesting that Tom's original motivation was to create a consumer-first clinic with modern technology and how closely that matches Amazon's current strategy in retail. I can't conceive of a better fit for both companies. As Tom said, the acquisition has yet to receive final regulatory approval and the road ahead to becoming a dominant national healthcare leader is long, but I'm optimistic it will prove successful. The synergy between the two companies, Amazon and One Medical, it's powerful. One Medical's model is a proven track record. Across the country, it's been embraced and valued by patients. What the company needs now is the capital and business connections to expand rapidly, both of which Amazon possesses. And Amazon has wanted to become as important in healthcare as it currently is in the retail space. One Medical offers that potential, beginning with its current 700,000 subscribers and skilled physicians and staff. I doubt that Tom knew when he founded One Medical 15 years ago exactly how the story would play out. But visionaries recognize opportunity when others don't, and they have the courage to move forward when other people prefer to cling to the past. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare.